Hello, everybody. Welcome to A French Village Podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, and I'm here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. Hey, Ben. How you doing? Hey, guess where I am? <laughs> Looks somewhere pretty. I am at my uh, secret farm, um, just like Marie, where um, I can hide and, you know, the uh, American Gestapo can't find me and I've got my whole resistance network here. So the next time the FBI tries to, you know, use a false flag operation to spark a rebellion uh, against the, uh, the authorities, I am going to run my resistance operation from my cabin in the woods, just like Marie. Is that where the baby cannon lives? The baby cannon does live here, yes. Although the baby cannon has been vacationing in Washington. But all the baby cannon videos are made right there on that uh, corner of my uh, cabin fence. Yeah, that, uh, that, that looked familiar to me, that railing. I've seen it before. Um, so Ben, love is in the air in in uh, Villeneuve. We've got a serious hookup culture going on in Villeneuve. You know, I made a uh, I made a list of in our two episodes all of the people and relationships that we are now uh, sort of back in business and and new relationships, right? So here's my list. Uh, so uh, there is. Danielle and Sarah, Berrio and Lucien, Schwartz appears to be hanging out with the maid that she now works at the, the sawmill, the maid from his house, the one that got her nose broken with the butt of the rifle when she was working for Janine, who was fired. Uh, so she's, she's hanging out. He appears to be sleeping at the office. Uh, Janine is hooking up with that guy, that horrible guy. Yeah, the Chassan. lawyer. Uh- I Chassan, can't remember his how, name. How do you think you pronounce his name? Uh, I can't well, even remember how it's, it's like, spelled. It's like C-H-A-S-S-A-N-G-E. Oh, Chassagne. Chassagne? Chassagne. Okay, that sounds about right. Yeah. And then uh, Muller is back. Yeah, Heinrich uh, and, Muller. And ba- back after Hortense. Although Hortense uh, is not I- having any of it. She yeah, uh, tears up his note and pours champagne on his on his flowers. Uh, Hortense, you know, we've she's reached her limit. Uh, you know, it's okay if you want to arrest her maid or you know or kill people, but if you torture Hortense herself, uh, she's uh, that's the line. She's not dating you after that, at least not yet. Well, well, I want to talk about this because this is sort of like the season three redemption of Hortense we've been getting. That yeah, I think although I want to say, can I just, before I forget to say, she seems to have developed an art exhibit that is all pictures of her. Um, which <laughs> we I don't think forget. I know, I want to talk about that. Don't I, I love that. That's, that's like, no, it's amazing. It's it's perfect. We, got it. we will talk about it. But then I just, so then there's also Marie and our new guy, Vincent. Yeah, loves in the air with radio them. radio operator. And Suzanne is uh, back. Oh my gosh, let me do my list. Okay, sorry. Uh, 
Yes, there's Marcel and Suzanne. Suzanne uh, comes back at the end of the second episode. Marcel shows up again, and they are they are reunited uh, in a in a vicious scene towards the end of the second episode that we watched. There is Raoul and the store girl who who be, for a kiss has traded um, a. a piece of contraband in the form of a, a tube for a radio. And then there is Rita and Marchetti. Uh, and uh, Rita is pregnant. A a thing I find more or less implausible generally, but okay. And so this is, that is a lot of relationships that we have to navigate that are in these two episodes. Yes. There's a bunch of uh, romantic uh, slash marriages slash uh, lusts slash um, uh, uh, crushes going on. And I find this completely believable because I think if the Nazis invaded my little village and you feel like you have no control over anything um, and... Uh, the first thing everybody would do is is kind of YOLO the romantic stuff, <laughs> and um, and so I I think it's uh, totally believable. Uh, I I agree, um, and also I sort of, uh, with the exception of the the relationships that I have commented on before, this is like a good this is a good universe. They're really putting the French uh, in in French Village uh, right now. <laughs> Um, and I think we should we should title this one "Love and Radios" uh, because because these are the two things that are really um, driving the plot forward. Uh, there is a lot of not only is 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 a radio a central plot point, but there's a lot of people listening to the radio, which brings me to the the. So I, I as much as we will we will talk about the romances and how they're driving the narrative forward, but the big external thing driving sort of a a new shift in energy in the village is the fact that the Americans have landed in Algiers, North Africa. Uh, and I am excited for you to tell me about the history of this. Okay. So, um, my military history of, uh, the Western front in world war II is not great. Um, but, here is what I remember. Um, and audience members who know this history better than I do, uh, feel free to tweet at me and correct me if I get anything wrong. Um, so we are now late in 42, because this is four months after uh, the, uh, the July uh, roundups of Jews. So we're now in November of 42, which uh, we... Uh, was the time of Operation Torch, which was uh, in early, uh, sort of the first half of November 42. And it was uh, an allied invasion of French North Africa. Um, I believe um, uh, le uh, led by uh, General Patton. Um, Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Was it Eisenhower? Um, yes, I Wikipedia'd this last night. This okay, is the reason I know that. So um, uh, this was a delicate thing for a couple of reasons. The first was that Vichy France was formally neutral in World War II, and um, 
but was allowing uh, German transport uh, across uh, North Africa. And so the, um, uh, the invasion was a, uh, effectively, a, a, you know, a, you know, Germany had, uh, France had been invaded by Germany. And now what we don't think of as France, but they thought of as an integral part of France, which is French North Africa, is invaded by the Allies. This was really important to the Allies because um, it was potentially a gateway to Sicily, um, which was a gateway in turn to Italy, uh, which was, you know, the European front. And of course, the Sicily invasion does in fact happen um, relatively shortly uh, after the North African invasion. And contrary to common belief, is the first Allied landing in Europe. It is not Normandy. Um, but before that, there is, you know, uh, there is uh, Sicily. Um, and so, um, but from the French perspective, this was uh, a big, big deal um, because it was a kind of threat to the idea, you know, the Germans had invaded and were occupying northern France or, or you know, France, much of France proper. And now the Allies were invading and were, op, uh, were occupying what they thought of as southern France or, or the home, t- you know, some of the uh, non-home territories, but the closest colonies. Um, and so from their perspective, this was, you know, a very, very scary thing. But as you see in the, in the episode, a lot of French uh, people are kind of excited about it. Um, so the more Republican people like... Berio. Uh, 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 Berio is openly excited about it and is talking to the baby about it. Um, his wife, who's, you know, kind of got a foot in all worlds and is also stupid, um, is, uh, doesn't really know what to make of it, but isn't like, this is terrible, right? Um, and uh, Larche is secretly happy about it. Servier, being servile, is not. Um, so, you know, you're starting to see the political divisions uh, that we've all seen socially really start to map on to military actions. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, I was like, when people say things, uh, this is just, I'm just going to admit this outright. I'm not great with my geography. And so when people say things like Algiers, whatever, I'm like, I don't even know where that is. Like, where is that in relation to this, this village? Um, but it, it was interesting to go, when I watched this the first time, I like didn't bother to be like, oh, let's go read about this. But I did go read about Operation Torch last night. Um, and it was, one of the things that was interesting is that it was the, it was the, a three-pronged attack, So, but it was on Casablanca. So it was, that was the sort of, um, I mean, we, we know some about that sort of through popular culture. Uh, the Casablanca, where they had a, a major base. Um, and then uh, Oran, is that how you pronounce that? Was at the center. And then Algiers is eastern. Um, and then they went into Tunis. Uh, and that is where the Allied forces began 
their sort of their moves on, in World War II. And what I what I love about the episode, like that, that you talk about Barrio talking to the baby, but when he talks to Lucien, he's he's talking about how he's pro-American. Um, and this is sort of the really the first time uh, we start to, one of the things that is interesting about the show is, this isn't really a spoiler, but you do get a little bit more of this, like, perception of the Americans and the allies as this goes on. Um, and I found that very interesting in the show. Uh, also, I just think that little bit of tension that it adds to, uh, whether it's Mueller, whether it's Servier, but the idea that this thing is a live issue, you know, when people say the right side of history, what they mean is, right, is that at some point perceptions of this are going to be different 10, 20 years from now. Were you on the right side of history? And you can feel it. I think the show does a good job of, of, of giving Servier and even Mueller a little bit of this sense of like, boy, this, it is possible this doesn't go our way. Like they never, and nobody says it outright. Like they're all intensely interested in hearing the news and what's going on on the radio. But it's, um, and actually there, maybe there is a part where a couple of them say like, this could be bad for us, but it's not, they're not saying, uh, they're not like having extended conversations about it. It's just in the air that the Americans having moved in is a potential game changer and they're for the first time you feel it on them that sense that maybe they're not on the right side of history yeah and so there's a couple of references to this miller uh as you note for the first time sort of says we can't win the war with idiots like this right it's the first time like the 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 germans are really kind of rocked back on their heels uh it's the point on the Western Front, at least, where they are being knocked back a little bit. And, and it's kind of the first time, uh, other than, I suppose, the Battle of Britain. But, um, you know, the, this is the moment where the tides of the war are just starting to change a little bit. Um, of course, we're still before Stalingrad, but we're, you know, but the and this wasn't an axis territory of course it was a supposedly neutral territory but you know the front is advancing for the first or from the german point of view uh uh receding for the first time the second thing uh that is referred to in the article uh, in the in the episodes and this uh my memory may be off on this i should I'll, i will is there's the references to the French commander in North Africa, uh, Darlan. And Darlan, um, the significance of this is that I believe this was the time at which he switched sides. And so he was the commander of North Africa, of French North African forces, and he was a Vichy official. Um, and there's a f fairly substantial French army in North Africa. Uh, and he ordered that army to cooperate with the Allies, which is effectively, uh, you know, not resisting the, uh, the Allied sweep in. Uh, and this was perceived as, uh, you know, treasonous by Vichy. He is, uh, I believe he was relatively soon thereafter assassinated. But it meant that the Allies essentially occupy North Africa without a 
you know, with, without having to have a war with France. Um, and um, there is, of course, uh, relatively soon major combat in North Africa, the famous, uh, 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 you know, North African campaigns. Um, but these are, uh, but from a French, you know, if you're living in a village in France, the big uh, thing that just happened was the Vichy government lost control over its own army in North Africa. And that is a very, very big deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, so then getting into the way that this sort of impacts the episode, besides you see you see the you see it in the in the sort of external dialogue among the officials and in Barrio, but then also the the central action is that uh, you know, Daniel and Sarah have are in they've they've they're they're post-coital. And they decide they want some fresh milk, which they go to a cow, some guy, some farmer, they clearly go get milk from. Uh, and Which, by the, the way, is a weird the, scene. Like, you're, totally. you're post-coital, and he says, you know what I really want? And you think it's going to be something romantic or sexual. And he says, and she says, to be young again? which is kind of what you're <laughs> expecting her to say. And then he says, no, to go get milk, fresh milk for, uh, for the baby and for Gustave. And I just thought, that's a weird-ass thing to say. And then there's no explanation of it. The next shot is them getting milk from a cow. Yeah, I mean, these are just like, sometimes when they do these things and you're like, oh, did you, you needed to get them into the bar <laughs> you know, to start having this thing. And like, that was your way to do it. Okay. Um, but so while they're in there, you know, blood's dripping from the ceiling, Daniel goes up, they find an, a guy there who's been shot. Um, and it's it's reminiscent actually of the time the dude parachuted, it, parachuted in and they've got to, um, you know, figure out who he is and what to do with him. Although this guy does speak French, um, and so they're able to sort of quickly uh, ascertain that he is uh, somebody who you know is is worth helping, isn't a danger to them. And Daniel goes to get help. Sarah stays there, uh, and and this is the beginning of the the sort of radio situation, which I guess I think is probably just worth the the the, the whole of the plot is. These guys, it's, it sounds like there's three of them, uh, came in through the airfield, parachuted in. They got one of them got killed right away. One of them is shot and injured, and then one of them gets away. And uh, the guy who was shot and injured is in the barn when Sarah and Daniel are trying to help him. The guy that got away um, winds up at Marie's looking for the head of the local resistance with whom he is supposed to connect so that he could, uh, so that he can, he can fulfill his mission. And actually, it actually starts with Barrio where somebody shows up the door and they've got like a code that says like, what is it? Victor Hugo is something. Was born in uh, Bessachon. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so uh, very cloak and dagger, but it's, I will say um, the show is sort of at its best in, in my opinion, like my favorite things are when this network of resistance, people in Villeneuve, as they like sort of come together and you see them trying to operate. Um, and and so, you know, Barrio gets the code. He gets, takes the this guy, to, this guy whose name is Vincent, um, takes him to Marie. Marie has got 
um, Cremu is living with her there. And so there's this little band of, of resistance. Um, and uh, when, so, so Sarah, um, you, you see at some point sort of in the first episode that the guy who was injured gets brought in to Marchetti's office. Like they're, they're on a search for these guys. They know they're there. Um, and they also seem to know about the rate that it's a radio operator. And they're very worried about this because this is, these operations are like how information gets communicated and it is, it seems to be a big threat to them. I don't know if you want to talk about that before I hit the rest of the plot on it. Well, so the French, so I I think the interesting thing that you've alluded to here is how much better organized this little resistance cell is than it was when we left them. It has a leadership structure. It has uh, developed modes of communication with other cells. It has, you know, a way for... Uh, a stranger to introduce himself and be recognized as a real person, although it's they don't trust it completely. And it's developed enough that the free French are sending them uh, a radio operator to get information or sending a radio operator to their area and notifies them for help. So you're starting to see the development of you know, genuine organized resistance rather than, um, rather than just, you know, scattershot activity. Um, And you're seeing it um, uh, later when the communists meet, I don't mean to mix plot lines, but these are actually closely related plot lines. The communists um, uh, uh, announce that to each other that the new party line is cooperation with all anti-fascist elements, to, irrespective of class, irrespective of you know uh, anything. Uh, this is you know the, what what they call the the Popular Front uh, or the National Front, and they are uh, you know which is a basically a green light to find the people like this and cooperate with them or work with them. Um, and this is really how the um, how the you know the French resistance of fame came to be. It was sort of a coalition of you know communist and nationalist elements, you know. And there's an exchange with the in the among the communists. Do you mean even the Gaullists? Um, and you know the communist apparatchiks, like yeah, yeah, even the Gaullists. We got to work with them. And you know this was a this was a big deal for, um, and so this is kind of uh, a, you know a fictionalized depiction of that, but that is really happening in this period of time, and uh, um, and it grabbed a lot of very improbable people and made heroes and sometimes a lot of dead people out of them. And you see that here too, where the uh, radio operator is looking for some important person named Dominique, who of course turns out to be Marie. And he's incredulous that Dominique could be a woman, by which he also means, let alone a lower class peasant sharecropper woman. Yes. Uh, and it is, it, is, it is when we learn too. I mean, we obviously know that Marie 
is uh, important to the resistance, that she's been involved. Um, what we don't know is that she has somehow set herself up as kind of an anonymous she, she's the boss of the res, of, a, of a part of the resistance there. She's the main contact. Um, and he even says, like, you're not allowed to be a woman. Um, but they have clearly all decided that she should be the leader and she should just pretend to be a man um, so that everyone will communicate with her, but that she's the one that they're they're following. Yeah, and it's not clear. How, I mean, it clearly happens in the four-month lag. Um, it's not clear how it happened. Although the uh, it would have surely enhanced her prestige that she personally slips into uh, the uh, school makeshift concentration camp and fakes a case of meningitis with a kid and gets her out, albeit almost only temporarily. So, I, I mean, I think you can sort of see how her uh, combination of cautious but also can-do attitude in the episodes that we've seen kind of leads to a lot of respect for her. She's the one who delivers uh, the uh, information from Schwartz. Um, and so, you know, she's at, we've actually seen her get a lot done uh, and she's also the least in hiding of the group with the, you know, Berio is, is been exposed and arrested. And so uh, Cremieux is in hiding. Um, De Caverne is missing. Uh, I assume he's going to come back at some point. Um, but Marie is, you know, operating relatively freely, although she had been arrested at one point. And so... Uh, I think there's a, uh, it's not totally surprising that she's a, you know, you know, come into her own. Yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. And I sort of, I, 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 there's a, later in the episode, actually towards the end, you know, there's this sort of storyline where Raul is back, right? So her son now, who has been around, we've seen him as like a petulant teenager, now is, you know, on the cusp of manhood, uh, maybe he's 16 or something. Um, and he's still and a petulant teenager. He's still a petulant teenager, but he's into being part of the resistance. See, this and is you what can all see- petulant teenagers need is Nazis. Because it's like, boy, do they give you material to work with. As a petulant aren't teenager. they just aren't they just useful? Yeah, yeah exactly. He is, he's, and and you know they can just jump on his bike and he's ready to go fight the powers that be and get and, a kiss uh, out of and it he's too. Certainly not above yeah flirting with a girl to get it. Um, but there's this this part that I just just before we close on on Marie, there's this part where um, you know he 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 does this whole operation right where he he has this girl he knows she works in a shop he can get a radio tube get her to replace the new radio tube that they'll take put it put the old one in the box um which of course they end up selling to the cops uh in an unfortunate twist for them uh for the for the young woman but he knows how to sort of sweet talk his way into getting what he needs out of this. And um, obviously there's this, this concern about whether or not this is going to, you know, le- expose the resistance. But, you know, he decently covers his tracks and everything else, uh, or so we hope. 
But there's this moment where uh, the, it's clear they've been able to get this tube operational. The the radio guy, um, Vincent, is, is transmitting the information. And he says to Raul, your father would be so proud of you. And Marie has sort of just hugged him and said that she herself is proud of him. But you see this look on Raul's face of, you know, that occasionally a teenager gives you that glimpse of their the thing that's important to their heart, right? And it's clear to that that what is what is important is his father's sort of posthumous uh, respect or regard. And so he takes pleasure in Vincent saying this. When of course, what Raul doesn't know is that his father was a jerk, uh, actually like kind of the worst. His mother was a badass who shot him in an important moment where she needed to like take that blood on her hands to get them out of a. Uh, you know, while she was running one of a very early resistance mission, uh, and that it is in fact his mother who is the one who is leading the resistance. Um, and anyway, I just there's a they do that sort of subtly, and it's it's a nice and interesting moment. Yes, and it it is a f- clearly a foreshadowing of some confrontation that her son. Raul and she are going to have to have over who his father was and uh, whether he was, what what precisely were the circumstances of his uh, untimely demise. I will say I hate the plot point about the uh, radio tube uh, and the hardware store um, because it's done clumsily and, you know, this is a small town, but it is not so small that the likelihood that if you con a shopkeeper, the shopkeeper's daughter into giving you a new tube and replacing it with uh, a, a, a tube from uh, your broken radio, that the next person to walk into the shop and order that particular tube is going to be the cops who happen to be looking for your particular radio because their radio, where they were list, trying to listen to the marshal respond to Darlan's defection, happens to have broken at the same time. And I thought, you know, it would have been a better move, I think, if Elian, the girl who sold the um, radio tube, had just betrayed him because, you know, he uh, didn't give her a kiss or something. Like, this was just in the land of, okay, it's a small town, but it's not like there are six people who live in it and they all have broken radios. So I do have to tell you, this is an extremely important point and something that I think about a lot, which is the show alternately either makes the town so big that, like, Marie is able to to just in like a costume of a of a nurse go into the school and like not have everybody be like hey that's Marie from the farm. Um, so the town is either so big that you know these people can 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 move without everybody knowing who they are, and then alternately yes, so small that Daniel you know pops over to this farm we've never seen for the fresh milk, um, and uh, and 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 the cops you know I mean there's like a million of these like, like, oh, it's so small that these coincidences happen all the time. Uh, I agree. I agree with that. I, 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 my, my feeling is, is that you're right, that that's a sloppy plot point and that it really is a, a big, a biggish town. Uh, I think they, they go more in the big town and then sometimes do these stupid little things. Yeah. I, I can, I, I think they're like the, the inconsistencies about the size of the town is 
peculiar because there really are people in the town who don't know each other. And then there are people in the, in the town who know absolutely everybody. And, you know, everybody has a radio and they all use the same tube and the cops are breaking their radio at the same... I mean, you know, like, if you broke your radio... Um, the likelihood that you would replace your radio tube at the same hardware store with the same tube that just happens to... I mean, it's its a little bit clumsy. Don't you think there's probably only, like, one tube, though? I mean, I don't really know much about tubes, but the big... the What we learn about them in the episode uh, is that uh, prior to the war, they didn't put serial numbers on them, but now, since the war, they do put serial numbers on them, and the reason that the cops know the girl's lying about having replaced it is because they've got a non-serial number tube in the thing. And like, they actually even talked to the supplier. Like they had, they'd gotten a lot of information about the tubes pretty quickly. So I guess I, I did think that perhaps, because I was doing the same thing in my head is like, how plausible is all this? Uh, and so my part of, part of what I was giving them is the benefit of the doubt was the idea that like, there's only one kind of radio tube. I um, would assume that if he was coming from London and with information from the RAF uh, about a bombing raid on this German airbase, he would uh, be using a British radio, actually. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just thought it was a little bit too neat that both sides' radios broke at the same time and they needed the exact same tube. And no one else's radio in all of Villeneuve broke that day and they needed the same tube and bought the broken tube in between. It just seemed a little too perfect. Um, speaking of things that are implausible, how, how plausible do we think the fact that Rita uh, is, is, is pregnant with Marchetti's child? At 40, relatively I, quickly. I, I mean, they say 40 on the show to give you some uh, whatever. I, I, I I'm not going to go into Rita's age again, but I just, I, I find, I find this idea that Rita is pregnant slightly implausible, but I don't know, my mom, my mom had my sister when she was 41. I'm not saying it's too, that's, uh, but the, the, their just whole relationship to me has always, um, like. Yeah, their relationship doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, it makes sense from his point of view, but I'm not sure why. It makes sense from her point of view. She doesn't seem to be wising up to the fact that he's separated her from her mother by getting her mother arrested. Um, I can't figure her out as a character at all. Um, what do you think? I mean, I just, this idea, so I actually don't see it from either perspective. I find it incredibly odd. So I, and I, I, I hate this relationship the whole way through, like from start to finish. Uh, I, the, the, I find it, impl I think they are, I think he is, I think he is like a 31 year old guy. Uh, and, and she is 41 and now he's impregnated her, him, him who is arresting Jews, who has no interest in Jews, who has sent her mother away. Uh, deciding that he's in love with this Jewish woman. Um, to me, I just like, I, it doesn't feel earned. Um, and I, I've never quite understood. And then on her end, uh, you know, that this, that this is the kind of guy who's going to like run this major risk uh, of having a Jewish lover 
when he's not a good guy, you know, like what he's going to do it all for love. I just sort of don't buy that about Marchetti. Um, and then on her end, this guy is like rounding up Jews. Um, like, yes, he protected her, but the, I, I just, the idea that she, it, it would not be implausible to me were she using him to survive in some way or whatever, but like, that is not how it plays on the show. The way they play it on the show is she is in love with him too. And, uh, and I just am like, what? <laughs> this is a bad guy and you've seen him be a bad guy. Uh, so like, and now you guys are having a kid together and you're going to get married. Also like this, this idea, right? So she is, um, he like proposes to her and oh, she's very excited about this idea. They're going to get married. On what planet does that work in this particular timeline? Like could, could French cops who are rounding up Jews just go ahead and marry Jewish women? So he gave her false papers, um, and so I think she, as long as everybody who knows keeps their mouth shut, she moves around relatively freely and is not, does not count as a Jew. Even but they though, also, like, lots of people know. Like, it's like Servier, well, Servier knows, knows, but actually he doesn't. And the, co- so the other Lariat. cops know. Um, yeah. But, you know, people, individuals know, but, you know, Servier is um, not interested in keeping her secret, but he is interested in, you know, keeping Marchetti loyal and reasonably happy. And so Servier pretends not to know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how realistic that is, um, how many people were able to kind of hide in plain sight because they had fake papers. Okay, well, I'm going to rank my relation, how much I like the relationships on the show. And I'm going to tell you that I like Marchetti and Rita the absolute least. Worse followed than- shortly by Daniel. Followed shortly minute. by Daniel Wait and Sarah. Wait, no, 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 you're right. You're right. Hortense and Muller. I didn't yeah, actually have written we gotta, this down. We Hortense go and Muller is the worst. Because there's They're actual not torture together in at the this moment. <laughs> I think once we've like gouged, uh, uh, what was it? Gouged uh, Hortense's arm, like arm with the, out with the, off, yeah, the, yeah, you know, the, the clipper with the pincer, you know, like that's a new level of yuck. Right, that's arm like gouging. not like safe word. They're not like having a safe word. Like right. he's, no. He's so a, for people in the audience who are thinking yeah. of doing that with your partner, no. Yeah. Right. So, so, okay, you're right. So, fine. So, Hortense, <laughs> Muller, Marchetti, uh, and, and Rita, and then Daniel and Sarah. Ugh, uh, I'm so and, not with uh, you on Daniel and Sarah. I like Daniel I and Sarah. I know you're not. Yeah. I, I actually, the, I will tell you that the Chasson, Chassonnier. Uh, yeah, they're and, worse. And, and Janine. No, but they're worse people, but they make sense together. Like, as is it is my sense of like who like that I buy that relationship that those two toxic, you know, horrible people have found each other and are like scheming together totally works for me as a story, like well, as a relationship. That, you and could a say that line. about Hortense and and uh, and Mueller too. Um, I although, think that's true. Again, I, I I am more interested in the Mueller Hortense relationship than I am in the Rita. Uh, like, I find that plausible and interesting and a thing that we know happened. Uh, I find the Marchetti-Rita pairing, like, just not plausible Super on either side. Yeah. 
Um, do you want to talk about so um, so that there's a, there's an interesting sort of side story which it, they never show us or at least have not to date shown us the airfield, but we have heard reference to this airfield uh, many times, and it has something to do with the concrete factory. Uh, you know, because it's supplying uh, concrete to the airfield. Um, so it has like a business, there's a business element, but it's also what the resistance has been trying to get their hands on in terms of um, information, because I think it has to do with like who's coming in and out of the airfield is very important information. It's also what the Germans are very keen to protect. At some point, somebody makes reference to this, the idea that the the the, the Krauts are, are crazy about the airfield. Um, and so it, it, there's this there's this side plot where Chassonier and Janine go to Schwartz, uh, who again now living with the maid. That is a relationship I I am I am that, that would rank in the middle ish for me middle middle to good. <laughs> uh, she's she's like an age appropriate uh, you know normie, uh, and so. But they go and offer him an extraordinary amount of money. I don't know how much 500,000 francs is. Um, and then they up it to 600,000 um, for the concrete factory. They want to buy him out. Uh, but it's unclear why. Can you tell, do you know why? Or is it no. just unclear? Um, I, 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 I'm not sure we're supposed to understand it yet. There is clearly a... Um, there's clearly a reason that they want full control over the concrete factory. Um, uh, it clearly relates somehow to this airfield. Um, he does not want to give it up for purely reasons of petulance and that he hates his wife. Um, but it is not clear to me what that, reason is. We do know it has something to do with the intelligence operations that the Allies are running, um, or at least there's some connection. Uh, they want, you know, everybody's coming to be interested in this airfield and the concrete factory is, you know, rely is, is engaged with it somehow, but it is not clear to me what is motivating the two of them other than they want to get Schwartz out of the way. So my theory, based on something Chassonier says, he says, I'm going to be the most powerful man in Villanova. He says that, like, while they're having, you know, bad people sex. <laughs> uh, that, that, that he, so the power, I think, is the fact that this airfield is clearly very important to the Germans would make him then very important to the Germans if he owned it. Um, and so I think they want Schwartz out of the way. And I think that while Schwartz is definitely not selling to them out of petulance, I also think he is both aware with that sum of money that they want it very badly and that probably they want it for bad purposes. And so he doesn't give it up for that reason. And also he knows that it's important to Marie still on some level in the resistance. And so um, I just thought that was like an interesting way to tell part of the story. Yeah, the resistance is interested in the airfield because the Germans are protecting the airfield. The Germans are interested in the airfield because it's an airfield, right? And and if you're um, if you're, they're presumably using it for military purposes. Remember, this is still the period in which 
the British and the Germans are fighting for air supremacy. And so, you know, we don't really know what they're using this, uh, this airfield for, but it's, we're not yet at the part of the war where the Allies have, you know, kind of uncontested supremacy of the air. Um, and, um, and then the, um, uh, there's a, there's a battle within the family for control of the concrete factory, which is important because of the airfield. But we don't really know what Chassigny and, and Janine Schwartz are plotting with respect to the concrete factory. Yes. Uh, okay. Also, another incredibly interesting thing that happens in these two episodes. So one of the, I mean, the, the best thing about these two episodes, I really enjoyed them, is like everyone's back, right? Like we haven't yeah, seen Marcel in a really long time. He's back. I, whole, the whole communist I was really crew is back. Suzanne shows up got, at the end. Are, are back. Yeah, but the and Mueller is back, which from a a like obviously no one's ever happy to see uh, an SS uh, psychopath, uh, except from except a from sort a of plot, plot point standpoint. Yeah, yeah, He's good it's for like plot. it's to have him back. Um, and but, but but one of the things that's fun is that in both cases, Mueller, who remember when he was when he was uh, kicked out, it was by Kolwitz, uh, who he now shows up and makes sure that to tell Kolwitz he is now outranks him, right? So when Mueller comes back, whatever he's done uh, in in the intervening months uh, in in Siberia has uh, enhanced his reputation. He's been promoted. And so he comes back and immediately sort of is saying to Kolvitz, like, you can't send me anywhere now. Like, I'm, I'm the boss of you, uh, which is fun, actually, because Marcel also does that to Paul, um, where in, in, when he comes back, he says like, I, whatever he's been doing off in Paris, uh, you know, he comes back and tells Paul, Paul, you made a mistake. Um, and by letting a political error and you need to go do a self-assessment and I'm in charge now. Uh, which of course in that part conversation, Paul accepts in that weird way, the communists talk where they like think about their own set of rules. Um, and he says, that is true. I accept that. But then, of course, right at the end, somehow Paul has gone and found Suzanne and brought her to the house to prove that uh, – because one of the things that has helped bolster Marcel's reputation is this idea that he killed Suzanne and sort of took care of that political error. Yes. Um, so there's a funny line between Marcel and – Danielle, when Danielle brings Sarah to hide at uh, their parents' house um, and finds Marcel there, uh, they get into an argument, as they always do, and Marcel says, you change lines more often than the party, Um, uh, which reflects his, you know, sort of He's a loyal party member and he has contempt for the party kind of all at the same time. Um, And so that kind of presages the latest party line change, which is, okay, now remember at the beginning of the show, the party's position is this war has nothing to do with us. We don't have a problem with Germans. Then the Germans invade the Soviet Union and they're like, you know, we got to kill German officers. And now their position is we got to work with anybody 
Um, and this, you know, just reflects different orders from Moscow. Um, but the um, result of this, of course, and this, you know, plays out in mostly non-murderous ways in resistance France, but it plays out in super murderous ways all through Stalinism, is that by following the party line at one time, you be run afoul of the next party line and can be purged for that political error. And so, you know, Paul, who is, um, you know, kind of the ultimate party apparatchik, um, believes completely in whatever the party line is now, uh, follows orders then, and now is has to do a self-assessment for following, you know, for doing exactly what the party line was then. Uh, you know, this is uh, many, many, many people, Pauls, lost their lives in the gulag over just such trivia. And, um, you know, and so it comes off as funny in this context, but it's actually, you know, one of the, one of the real, uh, um, you know, senseless crimes of Stalinism is that, you know, the, the more you believe in it, the, the more likely you are to take seriously an order that somebody later will decide is a political error, and then you have to denounce yourself. And so what he does is he has uh, leverage. Um, and the leverage is that he knows, it turns out, that, that uh, his underling, who turns out to be his overling, didn't in fact carry out the murder of Suzanne. Uh, and he, in a kind of Woody Allen, Marshall McLuhan moment, says, yeah, well, I have your Marshall McLuhan right here. Let's see what she thinks. Um, and of course, Suzanne, uh, who we haven't seen since she ran off to Switzerland, uh, walks in and um, looks terrified and then turns into a postcard. And so I guess we will have to uh, discuss what happens next week. Yeah, great to see her, though. Great to see her. Uh, she is um, one of my faves. Yeah, so the Marcel-Suzanne relationship is ranks among my top relationships. Uh, shortly after, they're not actually together right now, but Schwartz and Marie also um, uh, are are among my favorites. Okay, so let's spend uh, some time, though. Marie can do better on- than Schwartz. I don't, I don't like I don't like Schwartz. I mean, I kind of like Vincent for Marie. Yeah, at yeah, least for yeah, now, yeah, until okay. he turns out to be a creep. I don't. I have. I have no. I have no knowledge about uh, the future on that. But I. I, I will say yes. He's cute. Uh, he is. Uh, they're they're renegades together, and that's uh, nice. He teaches her a little bit. You know, and this is what I like about the Marie character, just in general, is that she's just always so interested. Um, and it's part of the way that she's, you know, she's very interested in learning how he does the coding um, to send, you know, the messages. And, um, you know, that's, that is how she becomes a person is she's just like learning all the time. She has that innate uh, desire to always sort of understand how things work and learn more. Um, but that also obviously serves to give them, you know, time to flirt and, uh, and become interested in one another. Uh so, but let's spend some time on Hortense and Muller uh, because it's, 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 he's back and he immediately, uh, besides getting Daniel and Servier in to make sure everybody knows the boss is back, 
uh, he tries to send her flowers and like, and you know, and, and what's funny is, is there's a whole bunch of preposterous things that I don't believe. Despite the fact that he tortured her, despite the way that they left things, I still believe that this is how he would behave should he come back. Well, let's pause a minute to respect the interaction between Hortense's infinite narcissism and uh, and his um, uh, crazed sadism. So she is preparing an exhibit of paintings of herself, um, uh, which of which we so far have no explanation. Uh, for some reason, Danielle is not discouraging the use of his house for, for this purpose. But, um, and into, back into town rides the Nazi sadist who um, thinks obviously having taken a gouging pincer to her, uh, to her bicep uh, that's nothing in front of her husband. Uh, that is nothing that some flowers and champagne uh, will not uh, address. Uh, he sends her flowers. She tears his note in half. So far, so good for Hortense. Um, so then he, of course, does the second step in any kind of romance of a woman that you've tortured you send people to kidnap her and force her into a car um, where you give her champagne and more flowers. Okay, she then makes a perfectly appropriate speech. Never, you know, uh, there's no you and me, blah, 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 and she pours the champagne into the flowers. To which... Now, this is where it goes a little bit awry, and I think you can see the seeds of stuff that's going to happen in the next few episodes. She then delivers this speech and does not bolt out of the car. She seems kind of hesitant to get out of the car. Um, And he opens the door for her, and there's this pause. Now, to all the women who have uh, have been or are soon to be courted by sadistic SS guys, um, when they open the door for you, get out. Don't, don't wait on the getting out of the car part. This is your chance. Um, Hortense, however, being infinitely self-absorbed, um, does pause a moment before fleeing the car because, you know, whatever else this guy may be, and he is quite literally a sadistic Nazi who has tortured her in the not-too-recent past, he does seem obsessed with her and that they have in common. A hundred percent. There is the part where he, like, grabs her face, you know, like, she is... Yeah, oh, I forgot. There was face grabbing in there. There was. There was. And like, you know, and it looks like you're not sure what he's going to do. And he like he remembers there is actually somebody else in the car because he's got a driver. And so he like doesn't go so far. But you can tell uh, that there is she the magnetism of his sadism 
for her is 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 there you're right about the the hesitation she is saying all the right things but when she gets out Mueller says to the driver I just can't tell if she's sincere and the driver sort of says back like well maybe that's what attracts you about him about to her and he of course is like like of course it is right he just this idea that there is this cat and mouse game with her uh that he is sort of obsessive that she's uh it is uh it is great stuff i love their scenes together um because they're they're bananas um but it is it is still it, it makes for great television and i think the, the, but it, you you tag on something that i think i kind of the first time i watched it i was very much in the okay hortense is getting like a big redemption arc um, that goes from the freeing Sarah to now like hating Mueller and saying all the right things. Um, but you, a, a more keen observer, I think, than I pick up on on the little the little seedlings that say perhaps this relationship is not over. But please do give me your um, so it's amazing they that she is and remember Hortense views herself as a bit of the artist. Uh, her early early dis, like early flirtations with Mother was about. Uh, Mueller was about art. Uh, and so she's a student of art. And so she has her first art exhibit, <laughs> the camera pans, uh, and to see the the display of, of her art. And it is all pictures of herself, all self portraits. What do you make of that? I mean, besides the obvious. Well, <laughs> there is the obvious, um, you know, and Look, the through line of her character, and she is one of the best written characters in the show, is that she is always thinking only of herself. When she's rescuing Sarah, it is because that would be, in her perception, good for her uh, relationship with Danielle. When she is having an affair with the Nazi uh, she's thinking. I mean, she's think always thinking of herself and only herself. And so she's uh, now drawing. What else would she draw? She doesn't think about anything except herself. And by the way, she's a very good-looking woman, and so uh, which she knows. And so she does a a, a, a remarkably diverse set of self-portraits. And uh, Muller finds out about this. And I think we are heading toward a great scene at the opening of the self-portrait show um, uh, about which I am personally very excited. <laughs> it is the best. Uh, it is the best from my, like, can you imagine if you were doing an art show? I just like, if my pal was doing an art show and I walked in and what they had done was just nothing but a series of renderings of themselves. I would be very concerned about their well-being because that is a psychotic thing to do. And the <laughs> fact that Daniel just is like, uh, okay, this will look, these look very nice. How many people are coming? And she says, boy, the whole town's coming to like look at pictures of me. Because you just think about the way a normal, like I would be, so humiliated uh, by this. Uh, it's a it's a childish sort of way to to make people pay attention to you. Um, but it's great. But it's a great plot point. 
Yes. And, uh, and again, because the character is infinitely narcissistic, the show has prepared you for it in lots of... And it doesn't dwell on it in this. It's just like, it's this one panning shot where, you know, it shows all the pictures and it's all her. Um, it's, uh, it's actually, I thought, very well done and kind of, at least so far anyway, not very commented upon. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's talk about just a couple other quick plot points before we wrap here. So one thing um, that is really interesting in these two episodes is there a, a cop that we have seen as like one of the sort of police officers in Marchetti's group, Vernet, turns out to be a cop within the resistance. Uh, we see that when Marie and uh, Vincent go to get the, the radio back and it becomes clear that uh, Vernet has, has managed to get the cops away so that they could come in without being caught and that he and Marie know each other and are actively working together. It also sort of solves um, what is a bit of a mystery in these episodes of like who's calling people to say, uh, hey, you got to get you know them out of here or let them know this. It's clearly, it's clearly this guy who is um, kind of the inside resistance. And not only that, but Marchetti is on to him uh, that he is he is part of the potentially the resistance and that, that he and Lariat no longer trust him because he is doing things like internally arguing, you know, against picking up Barrio and everything else. Um, but this is uh, this is it just sort of it, it, it is a it both it comes out of nowhere, but not in a way that feels uh, cheap. It actually comes out of nowhere in a way that you're like, oh, that guy that you've seen him. Yeah. So the thing that highly local resistance can do that is very hard to do from outside is recruit individuals because these are all people who interact with each other, who have relationships with each other, who have a sense of each other's politics. And there's a nice uh, uh, reference to this when uh, uh, the radio operator realizes that, you know, she's recruited a cop. He, he says, you know, you've recruited a cop? And she's mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I do what I can. Uh, and it's, um, you know, from London, it's very hard to recruit cops. But in a small town, you know, and remember uh, uh, that uh, Loriot, um, who is... Uh, as best as we can tell, a loyal national policeman, other than having a thing for Suzanne and, you know, looking the other way so she can get away. Um, now that she's back, uh, it's not just Vernet who's, uh, who's potentially recruitable. Uh, this guy has aided a communist escape and, um, and presumably the communists who... Uh, uh, including uh, um, Marcel, who are aware of this, um, uh, you know, are aware that he's compromised and he's potentially recruitable too. Yeah, well, you know what? Marchetti has now a Jewish wife uh, who's about to have... So they're all, they're all a little compromised here. I want to just, on Marchetti, one thing... Uh, that I thought was interesting is he has this conversation with Servier, right? So a big part of what Marchetti is doing through this whole thing is like, he's in love with Rita now, like legit for real. She's carrying his child. He wants to marry her. And so he's like panicked 
in this way about what has happened to her mother. Uh, he oh, is responsible. Let's for that. be precise about that. What he has done what he to did. her mother. That's and right. He doesn't want her to find out. He doesn't actually give a shit about her mother. He gives a shit about whether she will find out when her mother comes back because he's still living in the dream world in which people come back. He's he's worried that she will find out that he was dishonorable in that context. Yeah, but this is my point um, that, that I think is actually pretty interesting about Marchetti in this conversation where he's like, so where he's saying to Servier, she needs to send a letter to her mother. How does she do that? And Servier is looking at him like, you can't send a letter to people. Like, they're gone. And Marchetti is like, very confused. Uh, he doesn't know. He's like, well, it's one thing to arrest them, he says. It's another thing. Like, you can, why can't you get a letter to them? And it's like he doesn't realize these people were being sent to their deaths. Um, and it, clearly he doesn't. I mean, it's a very genuine sort of like, I don't understand what's going on here. Um, but it is a good reminder. Uh, we talked about this a couple episodes ago about like, what information do people have? Uh, and how does that inform their decisions? Because Servier seems to know what's going on, and Marchetti does not. Well, Servier seems to know that they're walled off from life. Whether he knows that they've been, you know, or that some of them or all of them are likely dead, I don't know. But he does seem to understand that they're in, that they're beyond the reach of the male. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think that it is, I think that the, the quiet culpability, the question of what do they know, how much do they know, and how that informs their decisions, I think is an important evaluative tool as you go through this process of thinking through complicity and then later being able to render a judgment on that complicity. And uh, it is always interesting to me when they give you a glimpse into clearly what people know and what they don't know. Um, and I think it's interesting. You can be somebody like Marchetti who does these bad things to people in the service of the advancement of his own career if you don't think that what's happening to them is that they're being killed or um, or otherwise, you know, something sort of terrible and, and they're being, they're now unreachable in this way. Where Servier does know it uh, in a way that is not, you're right, not, not precise or quite explicit, but he understands. He understands a, deg- a big degree more than Marchetti does. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I was less moved by that than you were. I, you know, when you're doing a roundup of these people, um, you're aware that nothing good is going to happen to them. I mean, uh, they, Marchetti seems to think they're going to be sent to a labor camp. Well, you know, rounding up people on the basis of ethnicity to send them to labor camps is hardly, you know, a noble thing to do. And, and I, and I'm, and I'm not sure that Servier doesn't to this day, this day in 1942, the November of 42, that is, think they were 
rounded up and sent to labor camps that you can't uh, send mail to. So I'm I'm not sure. Like I do agree with you that the um, that the show is intimating that Servier knows more than Marchetti does, but it seems to me they're both in the position of knowing precisely as little as they want to know and being mm-hmm. in denial about the people who they're serving are and what they intend to do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I, the thing that, that I was reading into the show um, as a plaus- as, as a possibility of why they had this conversation and were trying to say to us that Mark Hetty knows less is that because he now has a wife and a woman that he loves who is Jewish— uh, you know, is there is there a change of heart coming for Merchetti that he is, you know, because we we went through this before. I can't remember, um, it, but it was with the the roundups that there was this period of time where the French backlash to it when there were actual roundups, and so there is there is this sort of breaking point for if if you're not a total like sadist whatever there one assumes that people have different limitations and that like Marchetti is clearly a horrible person whose limitations are quite high on what he's willing to do to another person uh to advance his own interests uh however the I think the question is is like I think that I uh, to me the show was potentially hinting at is like is his current circumstance giving him a change? Like when you say it's a hundred percent true that he does not care about the mother because he did that I actually, at this at this point in the show, think now that he's really in love with this woman, and this would be like technically his mother-in-law, is he feeling a kind of crushing guilt about it? Is he feeling, you know, wait, what have I done? What's going on here? Oh, I think he feels crushing guilt, and I think he felt crushing guilt in, you know, we saw that in the previous episodes where he helps the little girl with her cover story uh, Cohen's daughter. Um, I, I just think his guilt is honestly morally meaningless. Um, and, um, you know, he, um, like, you know, he, he does all these horrible things and then he feels guilty, uh, uh, about it to which my reaction is, you know, you feel guilty. So what, 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 what what good comes from that? Yeah, I mean, sure, no good. It's not uh, these these aren't these aren't like things that you know dig Marchetti out of his hole. They're just uh, yeah. Like I said, I thought maybe the show was trying to set up a potential pivot, um, but we shall see. We shall see. Uh, okay, we've gone way over time. Uh, we should we should wrap things up. But uh, but it was a great couple of episodes, and uh, I think we're in for a, a good back half here of the season. The commies are back, and yeah. uh, the party's just getting started. So, Edith, take us home. Nous, nous bien tendrement, comme tous les amants.